Please rise if you're able. We're reading the Testament lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and then he squandered his property in desolate living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to, and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like the one you, of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get that fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father was killed, the fatted calf, because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and that is mine, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Carol, thank you so much for reading our lesson this morning. And Adam, thank you for your prayer for us today. Uh, to Mason and our praise band, a good, good father, how wonderful uh, to sing those songs together and to be with you in person and to be with you at home 
Uh, it is a great joy to share this time of worship with you. If you have been with us since the Sunday after Easter, you know that we're coming today to the conclusion, we're coming to the end of this series that we've been calling Kindred Hearts, that we started on the Sunday following Easter. This is the 11th Sunday, and we're beginning a summer series next week called Critiquing Jesus, looking at some of the criticisms of the elders, the scribes, and Pharisees about Jesus. And we'll be digging into that series for six weeks. We look forward to next week. Well, the story that you have heard this morning, you've heard a thousand times. You could probably retell this story in your own words. In fact, some of us resemble this story in certain ways. Different points in my life, I have been the prodigal at one time. I have been the elder brother Uh, I hope to be the loving father. I've even been the fattened calf on an occasion. (laughs) We know this story. It's the most familiar text, perhaps, in the Scripture. In fact, Charles Dickens said of this text, it is the greatest short story ever told. There are those teachers and scholars who refer to this as the gospel in miniature. I think if the entire Bible was lost to us, that this one chapter, if we had but one chapter in the Bible, this reading would lead us home. We refer to it sometimes, I think in the wrong way, we refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. I think that's a misnomer. I think this is actually the parable of the loving father. He's the star of the show. He's the hero in this story. He's the main actor, the main attraction. And so I think it's fitting on this Father's Day weekend for us to think for a few moments together about this great story. When you look at it in context, it's actually a part of a trilogy of stories that Jesus tells in the 15th chapter of Luke. It is preceded by two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. In those stories, you remember a shepherd loses one of a hundred sheep, a woman loses one of 10 silver coins, and both the shepherd and the woman conduct a search and rescue operation that will not quit, will not give up until that which is missing is recovered. I I love how Luke, in those stories, uses the word until. In both those stories, the woman and the shepherd search until they find what they're looking for. How long is until? It was three years ago. I remember the day, July the 30th, 2018, our daughter and her fiancé went missing on a rafting trip in the North Georgia mountains. The ranger called us at 8 a.m. on that Monday morning. And I remember the call. We immediately jumped into the car. He said they were lost. We have lost contact with them somewhere on the river. And we got in the car and began to make our way to Dahlonega, Georgia. It was the longest trip that we've ever made. We were just about to Chattanooga when the call came on the cell phone that said, found. They're all right. I, can't, I cannot articulate to you, although if you've ever lost a child for a time, you understand what that word found means. 
But it occurs to me this morning, if we had never received that call, I can tell you that we would still be searching today until. That word in Luke, until, reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is essentially a search and rescue mission. And if a shepherd won't quit until he finds his lost lamb, and if a woman won't rest until she finds a lost coin, how extensive do you think is the search of God for a lost soul? It's important, I think, always to understand the context of these parables. I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again, that a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. And so it's important for us to understand context. Why did Jesus tell this trilogy of stories in the first place? Well, you need to go back a little bit, go back to the first two verses in Luke chapter 15 to this reading. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. I want you to notice the difference in this text between the two groups. Watch this. The tax collectors and sinners are listening, while the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling. There's an interesting Greek word for that word grumbling. You know what it is? Gonguso. It's one of those, gonguso, it's one of those words that sounds like what it means. There's a term for that, onomatopoeia. When you hear the word bang or zip or belch, those are words that sound like their own meaning. Gonguso, grumbling. It's interesting to me that it's the same word used in the Septuagint of the Hebrew children wandering in the wilderness in spite of their miraculous deliverance, in spite of the fact that they were enslaved and set free through the Red Sea, it wasn't three days in before the belly aching began. Griping and grumbling, Moses and Aaron. And when you think about it, grumbling is a part of our religious heritage. We just kind of come by it naturally. Gunguso. I remember Dr. C.S. Lewis once said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. Sounds a little bit like the 21st century, hmm? But I want you to notice what they were grumbling about. This man, this rabbi, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, we need to understand something about the culture in the first century. Palestinian Jewish culture, in that culture, table fellowship was a sign of kindred hearts. It was a sign of intimate relationships. Really, having dinner with somebody was a sign of full acceptance. And it's one thing to tolerate those folk. It's one thing to throw them a bone but to eat with them? I think in some sense the Pharisees were rightly concerned that eating with these reprobates might be misconstrued as condoning their behavior. And so in response to the activity of Jesus, gunguso, grumbling, 
And in that context, Jesus tells these stories. You ready? It's intriguing to me how the third story, Carol, that you read begins with this line. There was a man who had two sons. You see that? We'll come back to that in a minute. We know all about the prodigal. That name, prodigal, in the Greek language means reckless or wasteful. The younger son typifies, embodies the tax collectors and sinners. While the elder boy epitomizes or embodies the scribes and Pharisees. And here's what happens. The younger boy comes to his dad demanding his share of the inheritance. Now that's odd because usually the kids get their inheritance after the funeral, right? After death, after the eulogy, the will is read, then you can expect to get your share. Usually that's the way it happens, but not for this boy. He can't wait. He has no sense of delayed gratification. In fact, the two most important words in this young man's vocabulary are me and now. I may be wrong, but I think he was a baby boomer. (laughs) Born ahead of his time. He's one of those who values his rights more than his relationships. And in essence, what this young man is saying to his father is, Dad, you're worth more to me dead than alive. And I don't know about you, but it's a little surprising to me that his father gives him his inheritance. It sounds to me like this dad is enabling this young boy. And I've discovered, haven't you, that sometimes grace looks a little like permissiveness. And gonguso happens. Oh, you know the rest of the story. You could tell it better than me. What does he do? The boy liquidates his father's assets. He cashes out and he, listen, he heads for the far country. What does that mean? That's a colloquialism for Gentile territory. That's a no-no for a Jewish boy. He goes out into a far country, into Gentile territory, lives high on the hog and later low with the pigs. And when he runs out of cash, He runs out of friends. That's the way it works. And when he hits rock bottom, he comes back to his senses. When he hits the bottom of life, I love the way one translations, he comes back to himself. The longest trip you will ever make is to come back to yourself. He remembers his father. He can now smell the pigsty, senses. He can now see the stains. He now knows what he has become and he remembers his father and he heads for home. On the way home, he's concocting and rehearsing his confession speech all the way. And when he turns the bend by the schoolhouse to go home, the father who's been waiting and watching since the boy disappeared, opens his arms, interrupts his confession with a new robe new shoes, and the family signet ring, and even kills Spotty, the grain-fed calf, heifer, that they've been saving for the boy's marriage. 
he's home. And the joy of finding always leads to feasting. And the whole town comes out. Everybody's feasting, everybody's dancing. Well, not everybody. There's an elder brother in the field who won't dance. This little cookout that they're having in the eyes of the older boy seems to cancel the seriousness of his sin. And he's a no-show for the party. And honestly, I have to tell you, honestly, if the parsonage had been adjacent to that farm, I might have sent my regrets too. He won't dance. Some of you have asked about last weekend in our family, we were in Atlanta last week in, in another uh, northern suburb, Bob of Atlanta, and we were in Roswell where your children are for the marriage of our son, Andrew. Have a picture of them, their first dance. He began dating this young woman who is a therapist, by the way. Now we have two in our family, which is really helpful to me. <laughs> he started dating this young lady last end of February, about the time that COVID started. And when he proposed to her after Christmas, I had a couple of members here who were, were concerned that perhaps Andrew had not seen Adair from here to here because of the protocol. And to be honest, I was a little concerned about maybe a, another Jacob and Leah story. It took about 14 years for that to be worked out. But what a night. What a night. The party was so joyful that even I danced. I wasn't going to do it, but Sherry pulled me out. My sister pulled me out. We danced all night. Someone asked me, are you a good dancer? And I said, no, but it was very entertaining for my children. It was described as something between salsa and clogging. I don't know what it was, but I had to dance. After all, I'm Methodist. Uh, when we grew up as Methodists, we could dance. Our Baptist friends could dance, but they couldn't enjoy it. But we love to dance. But I get the elder brother. I understand it. I've been him. Judaism had clear provisions for the restoration of a boy gone wrong. But such provisions didn't include music. And it certainly didn't include dancing. If I'd have been there, I'd have said, let him come back. But let him come back to bread and water, not to steak and champagne. Let him come back, but let him come back wearing sackcloth and ashes. Don't give the boy a new robe and a ring and sandals. Give him a loft in the barn, but don't give him his old room back. I would have said, let him come back crawling, but maybe not dancing. I get it. And I wonder sometimes, why is it, why is it that grace shown to an outsider sometimes feels like a slap in the face to a Pharisee? It's so interesting to me. He won't dance. He can't celebrate grace shown to one who is undeserving. But, but wait a minute, Dominic. Grace by its nature is undeserved. It's unmerited. You can't earn it, it's unconditional. 
I have to tell you, one of my pet peeves, I love words and language and phrase. One of my pet peeves is when someone says, it must be nice. Have you ever done that where you said to a friend, hey, I got a promotion last week. Well, it must be nice. Hey, I got a, I got a race last week. Oh, wonderful. I'm going vacation to the coast next week. Oh, must be nice. As though that person may be the only person worthy of grace. He couldn't dance. I want you to notice, however, that this father not only goes out to meet the prodigal, he goes out to the elder boy. In fact, he begs him to come to the feast. All that I have is yours. When he gave one-third of the inheritance to the younger boy, he gave two-thirds to the elder boy. But this bitter boy now won't even call his dad, dad. Listen, he says to him, all these years I've slaved for you, I've never broken one of your commands and you never even gave me a goat so I could party with my friends. But this son of yours, notice he won't even call his brother, brother anymore. This son of yours has wasted away your inheritance, blowing it all on loose living, and you slay the fatted calf. He won't dance. And in his resentment, watch this, he not only denies his relationship with his brother, he denies his relationship with the father. I've discovered this the hard way. You cannot fully be a son unless you're also a brother. You cannot be a daughter unless you're also a sister. And it turns out the younger boy wasn't the only one who was lost. The elder boy was also lost because you don't have to leave the premises to forsake the promises. You can be lost and still be in the pew. He was just as lost as his brother and maybe more difficult to reach because though he had never been to the far country, the far country was in him. He knew fully well his brother's sin, but he could not see his own. I think the mistake that that boy made was in assuming that he was without sin and when you don't recognize your own sin, you don't really need grace, do we? It's so easy for me to see the speck and be oblivious to the plank. Well, here's the truth. The truth is both of these sons had a distorted view of their father. Here it is, listen to this. The younger boy believed that if he did wrong, the father would love him less. And the older boy believed if he did right, the father would love him more. They're both wrong. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more or less than God does at this moment. Nothing you can do. 
Any more than one of your children could do something to take away their sonship or daughtership. There is nothing we can do to cause God to love us more or less. But I have noticed at times when loved ones are lost that the search is inexhaustible. The grace is inexhaustible on God's side until, until. Sin is deadly serious and it's almost as serious as grace. I don't know why it is, this is me talking, this is not you. I don't know why it is that I have a tendency to divvy up the world into either or. Winners and losers, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, saint, sinner, hero, villain. When it is so obvious that the love of the Father is both and, remember this is a father who has two sons, who loves two sons, who goes out to two sons. And the embrace of the younger doesn't mean the rejection of the elder. The love of sinners and tax collectors does not negate the love of scribes and Pharisees. But you got to dance because this one was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. Such is the love of the father. I had a father like that. I've discovered that having a father is important, but even more important than having a father is being a father to someone else, even perhaps someone who is not your own. One other word and I'm finished. When Sherry and I were in Cartersville, we had one son at that time. He was three or four years of age. Our daughter would be born while we were there. It was a small church I was serving on the edge of Cartersville in a little community called White, Georgia. It was a suburb of Cartersville if there was such a thing. It was out in the sticks. I got a call one day from a couple, a middle-aged couple, whose son had been in trouble. He was struggling with addiction, drug addiction, and he had come home. He'd been living on the streets in Florida. There was great tension in the house. The mother would often come to church. The father seldom ever came to church, and he seemed to be a very, a very bitter man, particularly towards his son. They called me over to see if I could help, and I went over to the house. The three of them were there. There was great tension. The son was with us in the room, and I remember the father becoming so agitated at one point that he said in the presence of his son, I wish he had never been born. And the boy left, and he never came home. I went home that night, and as you can imagine, I intentionally spent some time with my four-year-old. We got on the floor, and we were playing trains. And, and while we were playing, Andrew looked up at his mother and very matter-of-factly said, Daddy loves me. And he went right back to playing. I realized in that moment that that affirmation in his four-year-old heart was maybe the most important thing 
that he could ever know. The most important thing that you can ever know is that you have a heavenly father who loves you and runs to meet you. When you come to the end of yourself, when you come to your senses, it is this affirmation that will bring you home. And it may even cause you to get out your dancing shoes because there's more joy in heaven over one who repents than 99 righteous who don't even need to repent. But you gotta dance. Last word and I mean it this time. Mark Sanders and Tia Sillers wrote a song in 2000. You remember this song? I love this song. She had been through a very difficult transition in her life. She was questioning her identity. And among the lyrics of this wonderful song that Leanne Womack made famous and sang for us last year at a fundraiser for healing housing, listen to the second verse. I hope you never fear those mountains in the distance. Never settle for the path of least resistance. Living might mean taking chances, but they're worth taking. Loving might be a mistake, but it's worth making. Don't let some hell-bent heart leave you bitter. When you come close to selling out, reconsider. Give the heavens above more than just a passing glance. And when you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. I hope you dance. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.